0: Hi, guys. This is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with blogger and financial professional Joe Wiggins, who I would consider one of the leading voices on investor behavior. Joe's blog, BehavioralInvestment.com, is a must-read for investors looking to understand how behaviors, biases, and emotions can impact our investing decisions. We talked to Joe about a wide range of topics, including how to make sound investment decisions, the importance of focusing on process, and why a long-term view on investing is so important, and much, much more. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Joe Wiggins. Joe, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. The topic of behavioral finance has become, I think, much more popular over the past decade as investors and people like us try to understand how emotions, biases, and habits influence us. Um, But oftentimes I feel like the behavioral focus of it is like secondary. It's almost like a second topic in the overall discussion. But one of the things that... I really value about the articles that you write and your blog, which is behavioralinvestment.com, is that you have mostly, you know, you started with this idea of writing about this topic of behavioral finance, and you've really stayed, I think, disciplined and dedicated to that. So on your blog, you, you said, you wrote this four years ago, by the way. You said the purpose of this blog is to take the insights gleaned from behavioral research encompassing areas such as psychology, sociology, economics, and cognitive science. To better understand our behavior and its drivers. And anyways, just to start out, since I read a lot of uh, of what you write and try to almost read everything that you write, you know, I think you've done a fantastic job of staying focused on that initial mission that you.
2: Thanks very much. I think it's very easy to, particularly in finance, which is such an investment, which is such a broad topic, it's easy to opine on lots of different things and have uh, expertise in lots of different things. So I really wanted to focus on behavior because I just think it's the, the most important thing that investors can consider and think about and how we behave and the choices we make will define our, our long-term outcomes much more than what the next print of GDP will be. Uh, so we tend to focus and worry about the wrong things. Um, so I wanted to focus on behavior because I think it, in essence it's an untapped resource for investors that can have a, a massive impact on our, our long run outcomes.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, When it comes to investing, you know, I wanted to start by asking you, like, how, you know, from your perspective, how big of a problem is our behavior, and how would you go about trying to quantify that problem if you could?
2: Yeah, really difficult to quantify. I say it's the most important thing, but I don't have a metric to back that up. Um, So I think our behavior really is how we react to stimulus, and if you think about financial markets and the investment industry, it's just a torrent of stimulus whether it's financial news whether it's a different narrative or it's a different theme whether it's market moves on any on any given day whether it's the latest macroeconomic development we're getting a constant stream of stimulus to affect our behavior to want us to change our mind or to make decisions so it's this perpetual problem that we face in having to manage our behavior investment is not just a start point and an end point it's the bit in between that really matters and what we do in between um, so more than anything else it's a thing that will define our outcomes and it's a thing that we can get wrong on on any given day and if you think about one behavioural mistake you might make so let's say you you're investing for 30 years and after and investing in equities diversified equity portfolio over 30 years for your pension and five years in there's a bear market and um, because of panic and stress you sell out and then you buy back in when markets have recovered. So you've got the cost of that mistake from point to point and then you compound that cost over the rest of the years uh, to have a huge, a huge um gulf in your potential investment outcome, uh, a huge gap in your investment outcome because of that one mistake that you've made. Um, which will outweigh any other decision that you make or any other choice that you might make between different funds or different markets. So even small behavioral mistakes can compound into very significant significant detriment to your investment outcomes.
0: So you made a good point there. Like, you know, on the one hand, I think um, we probably understand more about investor behavior and what influence investor behavior. And there's, you know, more research on that and how it, the intersection of investing decisions and finance, but on the other hand, we're getting bombarded. You know, there's more information. There's more blogs you have obviously all the media networks. And so, and so, I mean, do, do you think, is there any evidence to show that investors are becoming better behaved as we learn more about these behavioral shortcomings, or is that being counteracted by all that
2: stuff i just mentioned yeah i'm almost certain it's worse so i think you have there's an overarching issue where we think about we are aware of behavioral weaknesses and behavioral biases but we think they apply to other people not ourselves so we always find it difficult to be introspective about our behavioral limitations um but more than that i think there's two issues one is as you've mentioned already is technology so good technology equals bad behavior i think in investment because you have a toxic combination of more information so you have more stimulus but you also have more ability to trade so more ability to do stuff as well so your ability to react to things is much greater than it has been before and the stimulus that makes you want to act is much greater than it has been before so the number of behavioral mistakes we're likely to make is probably increased significantly through time because of technology and the, the problem is that technology and transparency and control are fantastic things optically for investors but I think behaviorally they're a disaster unless you can find ways to to control that. Um, I think the other point is, my experience is that time horizons are becoming shorter and shorter. Um, So the the myopia in investment decision-making is pronounced and people talk about months and about quarters and about single years, like they're anything other than random noise. And that's everyone involved in investment from individual clients all the way up to the regulator who obsesses about short-term performance and that just encourages people uh, into bad behavior so performance chasing and mutual funds being an obvious example of that so i think improved technology ever shorter time horizons means that behaviorally we're probably at our weakest point we've been in kind of modern investing history uh, this this question probably could have been our very last question
0: it might be the most important question um but these are all important but if you were to try to highlight the three things an investor could do to try to reduce the role of biases in their decision-making process, what what would those be in your opinion?
2: Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, so the first one would be a simple checklist of our main behavioral limitations. So we know things like myopia, like overconfidence, like outcome bias, affect the decisions we make quite profoundly. And a checklist before we make a decision, where we work through that and try and understand where we might be affected is useful. It's not a fail safe or a panacea, but it's useful to make us aware and put it front of center, rather than something that kind of looks in the back of our mind when we're making a decision. So making a checklist of our behavioral limitations, a key part of our process is useful. Um, Second part, which I think is critical, is a decision log. So whenever we make an investment decision, we need to write down what we're thinking at the time we make the decision, and also what we're feeling at the time we're making a decision. And then you can go through time and build up an understanding of your own behavior and reflect on when you've made mistakes and what the most common mistakes that you make are. And if we don't do a decision log, we end up looking back, and with the benefit of hindsight bias, we rewrite history about the decisions we made in the past. So that discipline of a decision log is very simple, but also I think incredibly effective. And finally, I think, adding friction to your investment process is important so what I mean by that is how do you slow down your investment decision-making so for, for a private investor it might be something as simple as setting a password for your brokerage account that's difficult to remember or that you have to ask someone else to get so it might take you a day longer so you don't make decisions in the moment for a professional investor it might be using Another person to ratify a decision or using a kind of dreaded committee just as a second step, just to avoid you making those in-the-moment behavioral mistakes. And obviously, for a long-term investors, waiting a day or a week to make an investment decision doesn't really matter. Um, so adding some friction back into the process into what is now, I suppose, a seamless world in terms of investment decision- making is, is really important.
1: One of the challenges I've always had in building, you know, we build active portfolios for investors. And so behavior is obviously a big issue in that because people, you know, when you are active and you're different than the market, behavior tends to be a a really important thing in determining whether someone will stick with the portfolio. And one of the challenges I've always had is trying to figure out in advance what someone's tolerance is, you know, when their behavior will kick in and they'll, they'll abandon their investment plan. And I'm wondering if you have any tips in terms of how to look at someone's risk tolerance or their behavior in advance before you put them in a specific strategy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, Setting expectations, I think, is absolutely critical. So, irrespective of what's happened in the past with an investment, you need to set the correct expectations about what is reasonable and what's possible, and also making that very salient. And I guess the main concerns people have about their investment is underperformance or, or pronounced volatility on the downside. So being very clear and very salient about what that means and what it might look like to investors at the outset, I think, is very important. You don't want people being Surprise! I think one of the mistakes people make uh, is that they'll invest in a flavour of the month active fund that's got a fantastic track record and very consistent performance and then they'll invest in it without an awareness that it's not realistic for that to continue into the future. And then when it goes through a difficult period, a barren spell for a year or two or maybe more, they may sell out because they didn't anticipate it. So I think you need to set expectations correctly and make it salient, maybe put it in in dollars and cents in terms of the the losses or temporary losses you might expect for, for any given period. But being very clear about the uncertainty and the potential range of outcomes through time at the starting point is really important. Obviously, it doesn't replicate how you actually feel when you're going through it, but at least if you start by thinking about potential worst case scenarios, then that helps people think actually, when I invested in this fund or this stock, This was one of the things I thought about. So it's not a surprise to me. Yeah, we we found that, too.
1: And, you know, a lot of managers tend to try to sweep that stuff under the rug and say, you know, here's our long term performance and not talk about sort of the ride that it took to get there. But the reality we found is, you know, if if you want to get quality investors to invest with you, they need to understand what might and what might not happen. So in a lot of ways, it's better from a marketing perspective to be upfront about it than it is to maybe just say, here's here's this great performance, you know, and not talk about the way you got there.
2: Yeah, I think you might get fewer investors, you get, but you get more long-term investors and the right type of investors for your funds if you do it that way. Um,
1: I want to ask you, you've written a lot about fund selection and how investors select funds. and you know, Investors, obviously, we've talked about performance, and investors tend to just chase performance. They tend to look for the best performing funds and try to you know, jump on them when they're, when they're already maybe at their highs. And I'm wondering if you have any tips in terms of how investors can maybe think more about process and maybe less about performance when they're selecting funds.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a few bugbears about this, and one of the main things is just the pervasive use of performance screens to filter fund universes which i don't think i've ever seen anyone in involved in professional fund investing not use so this is where you have a search for a certain fund in a particular universe and you filter the universe by running a performance screen so you say how have these funds done over the last three years or over the last five years you might include some risk metrics in there as well I and mean, you in essence say well these are the top ten funds over this time period so these, this is the short list of funds that I'll look at so in essence you're, you're building outcome bias into the process from your first step so your your short list of funds is just driven by outcome bias and the idea that there is a direct link between process and outcome rather than just randomness or good luck or certain styles or factors that have been working so those performance screens are a massive problem because you just filter the universe by what's worked yesterday and then you pay the price because you probably wear the mean reversion when you invest in the fund um it's done extremely extraordinarily well before you bought it so those performance screens i think are a major problem and they shouldn't be used but everyone uses them because i don't think they know how else to filter the the universe and um, the other thing i think it's an issue for fund selectors is they're very vague about skill and about what the edge is and A skill to me is linking a process and outcome in a consistent fashion. Um, But lots of fund managers just talk about their skill or their edge in a very vague way. They'll talk about growth at a reasonable price um, or some other kind of secret source in terms of how they invest without being very clear about what their skill or their advantage is. And I think if you wanna move away from thinking about performance and and historic outcomes, you need to say, I'm looking at this active manager because I believe that they have this skill and I can evidence this in their historic behavior. And that's what I'm investing in, and what what I want to see going forward. Uh, And that focuses you on the process side of things, rather than just saying, "Well, the outcomes are good, so they've got a good process," or "The outcomes are bad, uh, so the process is bad." As we know, and as I wrote about recently, that even good managers with skill will go through periods of very difficult performance. So, if your time horizon as an active fund investor is three years, you'll end up sacking everyone because at some point they'll go through a bad spell and you'll sack them. And it's just a a disastrous approach to investment to sack managers after three years of underperformance and buy ones that perform well over three years.
1: Yeah, what do you think a reasonable performance period to judge managers by is? I mean, you reference three years, and everybody loves to use three years, and three years is a terrible, terrible period to use because that's a lot of times when the mean reversion is about to happen. But what do you think, as an investor looking at funds, I mean, what is, you know, we know things like value can go through like a decade where they struggle. You know, what do you think is a reasonable time period to use if you're going to evaluate performance?
2: I think as as long as humanly possible. Uh, so as as much as other people will allow you to take that time horizon, then that time as much as you can extend it, it's in your advantage. So if it's seven years, it's to your advantage. Even better if it's ten years. That doesn't mean you hold everyone for that period of time because their process might break down, or you might say. I was wrong about them having skill because the evidence doesn't reflect that they have skill, but if you're confident that they have a skill that over the long run will deliver value and you've no reason to doubt that, then extending your horizon as much as possible it's just a massive edge it's really. Theoretically a simple edge that investors can have like extending your time horizon longer than other people. It's really easy to do in theory, really hard to pull off in practice because of the incentives around the industry, which are very, very short term. So um, I often think that private investors who have got no external pressures have a massive advantage because their only pressure is themselves. So they can be a long, genuinely long-term investor and have the benefits of that without professional investors who've got the threat of getting sacked after two years if they don't change their investment uh, approach.
1: You reference a good investment process, and I know you've looked at a lot of them in your career, and I'm wondering what the common characteristics are that, that make up a good investment process.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, th- I think the most important part for me is having, at the start, a clear view on what the the edge or advantage or skill in the in the approaches so this is, this is what a process is trying to achieve uh, too often it's quite vague about what they're actually trying to achieve so it's difficult to build a process around that so what are we trying to get to with the investment process we're building so that has to be the, the starting point point. Um, and i think a good process depends on what you're trying to achieve but a few things i've, I've kind of monitored through time and what you really want is in a process that allows for good consistent decision making um, so i think probabilistic thinking is really important um, rather than kind of binary yes or no thinking in terms of how investment decisions are made um, and i think classifying your decisions in a probabilistic way is useful because it is a good expression of conviction if i say i'm 70 percent sure of something it's a good ex- Expression of conviction relative to 60% or 50-50 because I don't know so it's helpful in getting a team to understand consistently what the, the confidence in people's views are but also critically I think it allows people to change their mind because if you take a binary approach where something is good or bad or buy or sell it's very difficult to row back on that but if you say I'm 80% sure this is a this will transpire and be a good idea then you're telling people well actually in most scenarios it will be a good idea, but I'm aware that in certain scenarios it won't be. So it, it makes it much easier to change your mind and adjust that when you have new information. Some changed about this, so I'm now 70% sure rather than 80% sure. So it brings a, a clarity and a transparency to, to an investment process, which I think is um, really important. It's quite, I think it's quite rarely done. I think people dislike talking in probabilities because they think it's spurious accuracy and they think it's applying numbers to things that are too uncertain. But realistically we're doing that anyway we might not talk in numbers but we're still applying probabilities to things when we make those decisions so that kind of discipline and rigor I think is good in a process Um, the other thing I think is really useful is just an increased use of base rates when making decisions so when we think about decisions within an investment process don't think about your specific unique decision and the features of that but think about historic examples of similar decisions and how they've um, come to pass and how they, and the odds around those decisions. Um, it's an example in, in fund selection, which you come across all the time, is that people will take <clears throat> what, I, what you could call the inside view on the decision. So they'll talk about, we found this fantastic manager with a great pedigree and a, and a wonderful team. So that's the inside view uh, and the outside view where you'll bring in base rates uh, will be the fact that in this asset class, only 5% of managers historically have outperformed, So that outside view context for the uh, decision you're making is, is incredibly important to avoid this overconfidence and this focus on the, the specifics of the decision that you're making. Um, so that type of inside outside view and the use of base rates in decision making, which you see more of nowadays, but um, probably not as uh, as regularly as, as would be ideal. is quite interesting. And but the final thing I would say is some type of post decision review. So, within the investment process, how are the people employing it trying to learn about the history of their decisions about what they've got right, what they've got wrong, and how they might evolve it through time.
1: Yeah, you know, you, you reference probabilities. That's probably one of the biggest things I've learned, you know, in recent years. I read Andy Duke's book, uh, Thinking in Bets, and, you know, this whole idea that, you know, if you think about all the decisions we make in investing, how many of them are really 100% certain decisions, you know, almost none of them. And so that's been a big thing for me, is just trying to put probabilities in advance on, on these things that I strongly believe, as opposed to just saying, you know, this is going to be true.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's intuitively, i um... It's quite difficult to do it's quite hard to think through, but I think it's very rewarding once you once you start start getting used to applying probabilities to things that I think it does help decision making but again instinctively it's not something we we naturally do. Uh, one of the things I've, I've struggled with in my career
1: is this whole idea, as, as, as I study emotions and biases more, I, I always think, well, I can just get rid of my emotions and biases. If I study it enough, it's just not going to be part of what I do anymore. And, and I've learned the hard way many times that that's not true. And I know, you're, you know your work is amazing on, on behavioral investment. And I wonder if you could talk about maybe some of the things, some of the mistakes you've made in your career um, where, where behaviors come into it.
2: Yeah, list is long and distinguished. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I the most... <laughs> The most salient one, uh, I think back to, although there's uh, been plenty of them since is, I think it's probably late 2008, maybe early 2009, uh, in the teeth of the uh, the global financial crisis, uh, we sold out of high yield bonds. I think spreads on high yield bonds must have been, I don't know, somewhere between 1000 and 2000 over. And, um, And this was very much an inside view, outside view problem and failure in that the inside view on this was the issue specific to our investment decision, which was the world is in a disastrous shape, uh, the financial system is under huge strain, crunching recession, default rates in high yield bonds are going to be huge. Why do you want to hold them? Uh, so that's a specific, and quite an emotion emotional decision as well because it was we were under such stress at the time. Um, the outside view uh, was the kind of the historic observation of when you buy high yield bonds at a thousand over plus you tend to make very good returns after that and that was kind of just discarded because we were just being overwhelmed by the specifics of that decision so we ended up selling them a horrendous time and often they went on to do fantastically well Um, but it's so hard to take a step back and think in a kind of in a prudent and empirical fashion when you're in the midst of something that's so emotive and and um, and stressful and you're in when you have, I suppose, situations of stress or panic, your time horizon contracts really quickly from 10 years to 10 minutes, and you're just worried about what's happening right then. So you make really bad decisions. Um, so that's it's probably the most, most painful when I look back um, in terms of, and, and that was definitely, that was all behavioural, that decision. It was all a, a behavioural mistake about not be, having the tools in place to make prudent behavioural decisions at the time, at a time of, of stress. Well
0: Joe, I'm just glad you didn't I'm just I'm just glad you didn't say uh, coming on our podcast was the biggest behavioral mistake. state. <laughs> that would have hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well true. it's not over
1: yet, so we could we could still we could still get there. <laughs> um it's it's interesting too. Uh, you know, I learned that sort of that same lesson because uh, you know, I don't know if you know the guys at Verdot Advisors, mm. uh, Dan Rasmussen. But they've they've sort of looked at the same thing and you know when high yield spreads are at their widest you know that's maybe the best time to buy value stocks and you would think the opposite you know you would think these companies that typically have a lot of debt you know you want to be nowhere near them but you know in reality that that ends up being a great long-term opportunity for value stocks as well even though it doesn't feel that way no personally. and oftentimes
2: the best behavioral thing to do is the thing that feels bad and feels wrong to do and that might be buying stuff that's fallen quite a lot it might just be doing nothing so at times just well most of the time like the, the default option should be to do nothing and sit on your hands uh, but the temptation always behaviorally is just to is to act and to do things and probably to uh, at great cost so we often do things that in the short term feel good uh, over the long term uh, <laughs> look very bad in terms of the investment outcomes
1: I'm a little biased because I'm a quantitative investor, but one of your favorite ar- articles you wrote was this idea of building a systematic replication portfolio for discretionary investors, so that they should you know, build this systematic portfolio as sort of a comparison for what they're doing on the discretionary side. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the benefits of that are.
2: Yeah, so my thinking is any, any traditional, let's say traditional qualitative um, active manager should build a replica, a systematic replica of what they do. So in essence, you say to the fund manager, if you were to run a systematic version of this, how would you do it? And that can be as simple as, you, or as complex as you like. It can be a set of decision rules in a fairly simple algorithm around portfolio construction, the type of stocks you might buy and sell, or you could even go down machine learning and try and replicate the behaviour of the manager in, in history. It doesn't really matter, uh, it depends on the resources that, that you have and what exactly you want to achieve. But the reason I think for doing this and why it would be so valuable is that it en- enables the manager To see in a relatively noiseless fashion what decisions would be made based on their investment principles and process so you don't have any of the noise or the stresses we talked about or the distractions uh, that a human has you've just got the pure systematic version of the strategy and so you can observe it through time and see where the distinctions between the decisions that we're making uh, where human judgment is coming to pass and what's the systematic version doing through time And that should be, for a manager, incredibly valuable as an idea generation tool, if nothing else. But also just to see, and fund managers really struggle to talk about this. So if you're gonna buy an active fund manager, they need to be better than passive, and they need to be better than a systematic version of something doing doing something similar to what they're doing. Otherwise there's no point. So they they must believe there's some edge or advantage to human judgment. But often they're not very good at telling you what that is, and I'm not sure they really know what it is. Um, So if you have a systematic version, and you have your own version with human judgment then you should be able to quite clearly see why well, we've got an edge because of human judgment and, and this is it because this is what we've done differently that would never have been picked up in the systematic version of what we do so it allows you as an investor to focus on the things that you think adds value and not worry about the things that a systematic thing could do quite easily and then when clients are saying why are we paying you higher fees you can say because human judgment adds this type of value um, Whereas a pure systematic, which might be lower cost, but we don't think you can do this type of thing. So I think it'd be very useful in in, in that regard. And one of the the comments I got on the post was from an economist who said that they ran systematic forecasting models, which they found were very useful most of the time. But at inflection points um, when things move very quickly, they broke down and weren't very useful. And that's exactly what you want to see in terms of. Actually, most of the time these work, but we think that in, at times of inflection points, then human judgment or human overlay is required to refine the models or make them better. So you can say to clients, this is exactly the value we're adding with human judgment. Uh, but I found generally, um, whenever I've spoken about this, fund managers are incredibly reticent to do it, incredibly reticent to even think about it, because they say, um, "This my, my strategy can't be replicated systematically, You just can't do it. Um, And it's just like magic because they can't tell you why, but it's just like, well, good things will be done to you and you won't really know how it's done. But trust us, they're being done. So it's just in this day and age when active management is under such pressure, I don't think it's it's not really good enough. And I think they need to justify it and justify what it is, what the edge is that people are paying for.
1: I I would think one of the big fears would be what if the what if the systematic portfolio beats me? Uh, What do I do then? And that's
2: absolutely right i mean i think you have this problem i think within certainly with large asset managers where if you created a systematic version of your portfolio to help you make decisions which is a good thing other departments would get hold of it and then probably sack you if it performed better than you so you're right that people people will be very worried about it outperforming them um, but yeah that's a not a great reason not to do it but i have I, it's not people haven't been very receptive to doing it
1: I want to shift gears and talk about, you wrote an article about 10 common mistakes that fund investors make, and you you had some great uh, examples in there, and we we can't go through all of them, but I wanted to go through some of the points you made there, and maybe see if you could expound on them a little bit. Um, And and the first was searching for performance consistency.
2: Oh, this is, I find it so frustrating in that people, I know this is widespread, that when people are looking at active funds or anything that's not a pure passive, they rate things based on performance consistency, so how consistently they've outperformed generally over a really short period, so quarters, or years um, as if that is in its in of itself an indication of skill but to believe that you have to believe that either someone can predict markets over the short term if they couldn't they wouldn't outperform consistently and nobody can do that so that doesn't work or you believe they've got a style that outperforms in every environment and there's no such thing as that so the logical extension of that is it's just randomness and if, if fund managers let's say fund manager was just picking names of stocks out of a hat you would still get consistent performance just through randomness and it would look like skill but it was just it would just be pure luck so performance consistency is used frequently as shorthand for skill um, and I it's just nonsense it there is no it's just randomness or style biases that work for a period there's no reason to believe that any fund manager will consistently perform just because Markets are random and capricious, and no one can predict what they'll do from one quarter to the next. So why should you expect there to be consistent performance? And I think it's a, it's a time horizon problem. Again, it's because people have got a three-month view, and they should have a decades view, and that's a, a massive problem.
1: Yeah, you know, calendar years can be an issue with this as well. I don't know if you remember, you know, when Bill Miller had his 17-year streak, where he beat the S and P every year. You know, if you had looked at different trailing 12-month periods that didn't end in end December, he actually didn't beat it for 17 straight years. It was just the fact that investors were focused on calendar years
2: absolutely yeah i mean the time horizon that you that you use and how you cut it can have a huge impact but i mean if you get enough people flipping coins uh someone's gonna get 10 heads in a row and and then someone will think they're they're particularly skillful when it's just kind of luck and randomness and we like to build narratives around that and around that randomness
1: uh, the second point you made in the article that i want to ask you about is neglect neglecting the circle of competence
2: yeah this is a, a big problem as well where uh it certainly had been an issue in the uk in fund management in the last couple of years quite significantly so but when we have Successful fund managers um, They tend to be regarded as great investors in very broad terms as if that means something but obviously Investing is a huge array of different types of games that people play and partake in um, Very narrow things as well But when someone's a staff fund manager in particular, we just assume that they are great investors and then they go and start doing other stuff um, So we've had like investors in the UK going to invest in China or investing in unquoted Biotech stocks just doing things where they've got no pedigree no evidence They've got skill in that area, but because they're great investors then we're happy for them for them to do it Um, And you get people in kind of moving out of their circle of competence just Through chance really so you have a manager who's investing in smaller companies becomes very successful But the asset size grows so much that they have to invest in bigger companies, but they've got no skill doing that so you can get forced out of your circle of competence quite quite easily. And it goes back to my point that you need to have a view if you're investing in any type of active strategy, whether it's quant or smart beta or, or traditional qualitative active, then you need to think about what is the skill here? And it should be very focused and narrow about this is the skill. And then if they start doing stuff outside of that, then that invalidates your idea of what the skill is. So you shouldn't be, be using them anymore. So you need a clear idea of what the circle of competence is. And also the other part is, you should know what your own circle of competence is and probably know that it's narrower than you think it is as well.
1: Um, the third one i to ask you about is a pet peeve of mine as well, because you, you'll have investors a lot of times say, you know, I'm invested in XYZ index, so I'm not an active investor. But the, the reality behind the scenes may be a little different than that. So can you talk about your point of forgetting we are all active investors?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's this spurious notion that someone can just be a passive investor as if there's this kind of passive neutral portfolio that isn't taking a view. Um, I think it's what it's Obviously passive has done better than active in broad terms, if we talk about fund and indices in the last decade. But it's taken hold really because a combination of being long US equities and long global ag, um, like the classic sixties, forty split has done so well, and that's felt to be like the neutral portfolio. Um, but your choice of indices and how you allocate your portfolio is always an active view. So whether you choose to be equally weighted or market cap, whether you choose to include emerging markets, whether you include, include, include smaller companies, do you do S&P 500 or do you do a total market index? You're always taking views. There's loads of active views even in what might be a, a passive portfolio. So lots of investors that have been passive are now very long duration and very long US equities. And 10 years later, if that hasn't worked, is that fine because that's just a passive investment or is that has that underperformed other passive stuff and passive stuff that has has worked better. So I think you need to be very clear about, I'm taking, I might be investing in passive underlying, but I'm still taking active views on market cap and countries and on credit quality. And you need to be very clear about what those, what those bets on views are. And the last
1: one I wanted to ask you about um, is ignoring the odds of the game.
2: Yeah, um, so I think, again, this goes back to base rates and that we always need to think about for any decision we have, what are the odds of success? Um, and that's not easy. And there's no there's no magic number that you can pull out for a decision. But you need to have an idea of what the game is you're playing and how what the chances of success are. So, but the obvious one is looking at success of active managers in various regions, in various markets, various types of styles, and thinking about historically how well that's worked. Uh, and different markets will have different success rates. Some will be ten percent, some will be fifty percent. Um and there'll be a lot of reasons for that. But you need to understand before you make a decision what you think the odds are, what you think the chances are of success. Um because it doesn't matter I'd rather invest in a in a in a kind of slightly above average active manager if the odds of success were fifty percent than in a in a great active manager if the odds of success were uh, one in a hundred so you need to think about what the chances are of, of success um, rather than just simply um, kind of the specifics of the investment that you're making
0: one of the um, I guess ideas that we hear a lot about in the market is the current value of stocks today represents the intrinsic value that all investors are giving the stock in the market and you kind of flip this a little bit with your article why should equities be fairly valued. And you sort of made the point that, you know, investors are actually measuring many, many different things. Intrinsic value might be whatever, 1% of how investors are choosing to buy and sell
2: sort of stocks. So I was just wondering if you could kind of explain that argument a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So I find it puzzling that everyone spends a lot of their time talking about the the intrinsic or fair value of of equity markets, which is an interesting but unknowable thing. I find it puzzling that people spend so much time thinking about it and also the idea that the market is efficiently priced because lots of people are trying to find intrinsic value which uh, to me is nonsense because as you say I don't think many people are trying to do that um, So I th- if you think about the, the wisdom of crowds model Which I think is why people think that equities might be efficiently priced based on that. So you have lots of different people guessing the uh, the weight of, a, of a, an ox um, And all of that information comes together and aggregates into something that's quite close to the actual answer. Um, But that's not analogous to this situation because no one is trying to find intrinsic value or virtually no one's trying to find intrinsic value. So it's like asking, trying to guess the weight of an ox by taking the average of someone guessing the weight of a pig, of a cow, of a sheep, of doing all sorts of different things and then saying, well, that's a good guess uh, for the weight of an ox. And it's just, it's not. You've got so many investors with a variety of time horizons. There might be price momentum investors. There might be macro investors, the vast majority of whom, could not care less what the intrinsic value of equity markets are so i suppose the point i was making is that on any given day there is no reason to expect equities to be a good approximation of, of fair value um, that doesn't mean i don't think valuation doesn't matter because i think it really does matter um, and what you pay for something is aside from behavior is probably the largest determinant of the, the long run returns you make um, it's just it's not going to matter and it's not going to matter on any given day So, I I kind of class it as I think there's a weak gravitational pull from the fair value of equity. So, equity markets will kind of wax and wane in a fairly random fashion, probably an upwards trajectory through time, and they'll randomly pass through what fair value might be at various points. Um, And there's a weak gravitational pull because if it gets too extreme, then investor behavior will change quite significantly. So if equities are incredibly cheap, they'll get pulled back down by investor behaviour change and they're incredibly expensive, I think investor behaviour will change as well. So I think extremes are quite important. Um and it will and it will move back around and through fair value at various points in time. But again, there's, there's no reason to believe that equities are the best guess of fair value today or, or will be tomorrow. And I can I can't understand why people would think they would be given most people aren't aren't even attempting to find out what that is. Speaking of value, and I think this quote kind of captures it, which is the quote that the
0: market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. That's basically Buffett quote. It's a modified Ben Graham quote because he actually didn't say that. He said something different. But I'm just wondering, what are your sort of current thoughts on sort of where we are, not today in the market, but what we're seeing sort of over time and whether or not the market may be more of a voting machine in the long term as we become a little bit less tethered to fundamentals. I mean, do you think that idea has any merit, or is it
2: just the the environment we're in today? Maybe that. Yeah, I think it probably does. So, I think fundamentals and, and cash flows and the reinvestment of those cash flows will matter a great deal over the long run. But I think what we've got is a combination of, as we've talked about already, lots of people with shorter time horizons and, and different investment approaches, doing different things and investing. Playing different games uh, in, the, in the stock market or in the credit market. Um, so, the fundamentals for different types of investors are just different. So, I guess the fundamental for a, a momentum investor or a day trader is very different to what it is as we might classify long run fundamentals of, of equity investing, for example. So, I think there are more people doing very different things in markets, um, which probably makes markets noisier. Uh, and probably harder to, to deal with in terms of the daily and weekly and monthly fluctuations. Um, so I think you get more noise um, over the short term, but over the long run, those those fundamentals will still matter. Um, but probably sticking, sticking with a process that is reliant on the fundamentals might be harder in the short term than it was previously. We've talked a lot about time horizon
0: and how that might be, you know, an edge for some uh, investors, particularly individual investors that aren't under pressure. So, but you wrote a good, um, article, the three elements of an investment time horizon, where you looked at, um, time horizon through objectives, interactions, and then activity. And you kind of segmented these things out and how each one of those was important when thinking about, um, an investor's time horizon. So I was just wondering if you could kind of explain that.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, how we manage our time horizon is, is so important behaviorally um from an investment standpoint um i think objective is something where it's obviously i think it's often quite misleading because we might have an objective written down on a page so a farm manager might have a five-year objective or um a private investor might have a 30 years to go until uh, they retire and start drawing on their on their pension um so you might think that's the time horizon but that's probably not the time horizon that's, that's probably some other objective so if you think of the fund manager example you might have a fund manager that's going through a difficult spell of performance and their clients are um, requesting requesting frequent frequent meetings they're worried about losing their job Um, so their time horizon might be three months or six months so they're not making decisions based on a five-year horizon they're making decisions about what they think might work in the very short term uh, because they're managing career risk or you might have a fund manager with a performance fee structure and their behavior is changing because that's crystallizing in in a year's time so they might have a five-year horizon as their investment objective but they're getting paid over the next year so they make decisions based on that and even with private investors with long long horizons if they're buying the, the latest flavor of the month ETF for example they're not thinking about long run horizons they make thinking about the returns they're going to make over the next three or six months so I think we need to be clear about what a genuine objective is when we're making a an investment decision from a from a time horizon perspective. The second point was on interactions um, and the frequency of interactions with our investment is really important because our behavior as I've said earlier is a, a reaction to stimulus and how often we we interact with markets. So every time we, we check our portfolio value or we read a news article or we read a blog post, we are interacting with our investments, where there is stimulus there that might make us act and make decisions. Um, so we're much more likely to be a long-term investor uh, if we don't check our um, investments or read financial news every day than we are if we're poring over it uh, every morning and, and afternoon. So limiting our interactions is quite a useful behavioural tool um, into making us long-term investors. And the final part is activity, and that's just the ability to trade. Um, so we have our interactions with it which kind of gives us a stimulus and makes us want to trade and then you have to have the ability to trade um, so if you're locked into an investment for, for five years uh, that means you can't trade so you can't make as many behavioral mistakes that's not uh, so I'm not suggesting you should get locked into investments but one benefit is your inability to trade And I think that's probably the real illiquidity premium is you can make fewer behavioral mistakes because you can't trade um, so if there is any Advantage to that type of uh, liquid investing, it's probably behavioural rather than anything else. Um, so I think for your from a time horizon perspective, you need to think about what your real objective is, and then try and focus your interactions and your activity in a way that can align you with that time horizon. If you've got a twenty-year time horizon and you're checking your portfolio every day, um, the frequency with which you check your portfolio will win. That battle.
0: One of the things I think as investors, um, we have a tendency to sort of anchor on our past experiences and kind of fight the last war. So, for example, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis, everyone was kind of looking for the next big downturn, which, you know, didn't really come. Um, but when the next big downturn sort of did come, it was, even though it was short, it was due to the pandemic that no one saw coming. So I think you've written about this, this idea of, you know, not letting our past experience sort of drive maybe the investment decisions going forward. And I'm just wondering how you think about risk in the context of the full spectrum of possibilities that can happen in the market and maybe not being too, um, too anchored
2: to those past experiences. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think we we spend kind of a decade after a major risk event in markets thinking about that risk event and trying to prepare for it happening again and of course it never happens again and it's an entirely different risk that comes to pass. And I've kind of spent a lot of time looking at macro hedge fund style strategies and um in the DEX, they'll all ha- always have details on risk reports they've got, stress tests, looking at how the fund would have performed in previous historic risk situations, which is pretty meaningless uh, for a variety of reasons but particularly because the next major risk will not be captured in their model so I'm sure they'll be adding kind of global pandemic to the, the risk model and we'll worry about that happening again over the next 10 years and it will be something different that transpires that we that we won't predict um, so it's really hard actually because I think what we need to think about is that we're dealing really with uncertainty rather than risk uh, risk is where we think about outcomes that are known Um, And they've got different probabilities assigned to those and uncertainty is where we've got a huge range of different probabilities and uh, uh, Possibilities and we don't know uh, The full scope of of what they are. So we're in an uncertain environment Um, And we're really bad at dealing with those risks and uncertainties We tend to just think about the things that are salient and available. So We won't insure our house against flood risk until it's been flooded uh, and then we'll be uh, very keen to, to insure it So it's when those risks uncertainties become salient in our minds that we tend to tend to deal with them Um, so I think the most important thing is to not spend a lot of time trying to predict specifically what the next risk event will be uh, because we will be wrong Um, uh, so we need to think about there are a broad range of outcomes and some more negative than uh, we might expect don't spend too much time forecasting exactly when the next recession will be uh, or what will cause it Um, but maybe just think more generally about if we've got a portfolio we can think about there'll be scenarios when equity markets could well be down 40 percent for example over a time horizon we don't need to know what causes that and in fact we'll never know what causes that but let's think about risk in terms of the periods of volatility and the periods of loss we'll go through in our portfolios for unidentified reasons and then think about how we'll deal with that type of situation um so i think the problem we'll have is thinking too much about stories and making forecasts about the future that we can't do, but rather than saying, there's a variety of different paths that our portfolio could take for reasons that we don't know, are we prepared for this broad range of of different paths? Um, So saying thinking about your portfolio and saying, in something happens and there's a recession or there is a shock and it's down 30%, how would you deal with that? Are you comfortable with that type of situation? Is much better than saying, I think that, there's going to be a recession next year um, because of X, Y, Z happening, because I just don't think. Obviously, we know that people are rubbish at making those types of forecasts, and and we shouldn't spend our time doing it. We we should spend our time being behaviorally prepared for the consequences of very negative risks rather than predicting exactly when they'll occur or exactly what will cause them.
0: Jack, I guess this means our global pandemic risk parity strategy (laughs) has to be sunsetted. Yeah. No, I was just, I was just getting that thing running. We were just no, no, but that's, that's great, Joe. Thank you. Um, so for our last, uh, standard closing question, we like to ask all of our guests, um, and you've been great with your time today. So we really appreciate it. Um, based on your experiences in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be?
2: Yeah. So this is going to come as no surprise. If, um, if you've listened to the full conversation and that's, uh, I, just try and check your portfolio less frequently this is really hard for professional investors to do for obvious reasons um, provide private investors it's certainly possible so I think if you want to control your behavior one of the crucial ways of doing it is to interact with your portfolio less frequently so make sensible long term investment decisions and stick with them um, it's my is a key motto I think for most investors doesn't mean you never touch them but if you're Uh, prudent uh, and moderate in how you interact with your investments, then you're far more likely to make good decisions and fewer decisions through time. Um, If you interact with it too frequently, you're increasing the risk of making behavioral mistakes, which will just compound um, significantly and negatively through time. So check your portfolio less frequently after making sensible decisions at the start.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Joe. If people want to learn more about you, um, read your articles get on your email list where can they go
2: so it's on behavioralinvestment.com and i'm also on twitter at uh, behavioral
0: joe great we'll put links to um those in the show notes and we just want to say thanks for joining us we hope you have a great summer good luck in the new position we wish you all the best and um looking forward to continued articles from you so thank you really enjoyed it
2: thanks very much for your questions take care both thank you thank you cheers bye
0: Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.